0: Now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards.
1: Welcome to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm your host Cam Edwards. Thanks so much for joining us. We have Miss E with us as well. Bullet the uh, cutest dog in the world is hanging around in the background and that little cheapy sound you hear. That little cheap is one of our chickens, one of our pullets. Who is uh, inside with us over the next few days because it is uh, it's really really cold we introduced some new pullets into the coop and uh the the new generation and the old generation aren't really getting along too well so with it uh, being as cold as it is and they're not uh, all snuggling up for warmth we moved the pullets inside for a few days we uh, we gave up uh well we took away <laughs> our uh, our smallest dog's crate, and we have a couple of pullets in there uh, for the next few days. So I figure we actually hadn't—you know—this is the fifth episode of Forty Acres and a Fool, and you'd not actually heard any of the animals. So you really have no proof that, in fact, we are coming to you from a farm. We're gathered around the kitchen table again tonight. So here is proof. Well. <clears throat> <laughs> There's there's some quiet proof that uh, we actually do have chickens around here. I su- I suppose we could bring a goat inside. I'm not I'm not bringing a goat inside. That's just not going to work. Missy no. e is with us as well.
2: Um. Well, I'm sorry, honey, but one of your future shows may very well feature an indoor goat because the weather as it is, and we have three pregnant does. We have between. We have the chance to have between three and five babies.
1: Oh, I know, I know. That would be the the one exception, I suppose, if we need to uh, bring a, a tiny little baby goat in. Actually, I saw a story this week about a farmer who saved a baby goat that was born. Oh, it didn't, it didn't make it. It did
2: not. In the follow up stories, they thought it, it, they thought it had a chance, but it ended up not making it. Oh. It, it sort of triggered a whole bunch of conversation on the Animal Keeper site. It's like, how far do you go and how hot do you do it? And um, actually one person had We should it.
1: finish the sentence, by the way. He put the little baby goat, oh. which was frozen outside, put it basically in the oven with the door open on Really low heat in an attempt to to warm warm it up, right? But it didn't work,
2: it didn't work. However, there were other people who had offered up their ideas and they were ingenious. Yeah, what they had done with the baby goats that had been so, so what happens is they're they get born and it's ridiculously cold and they're wet, Mm -hmm. and so they're they are they they're prone to hypothermia, and so, um, what they so they get really cold, and if you don't get to them in time, something bad can happen. Well, a couple of people had i uh, really great ideas. You wrap the baby up in your coat and then you stick your ha- a hairdryer up one of the sleeves.
1: Oh. And it pumps
2: in the warm air and it's in a big blanket and it it's done wonders. Like at least 3 to 5 people who commented on that had positive things to say about that method about warming up a baby. So Oh wow. There's some good news for people if they've gonna have baby goats. Now, this is a way to keep them warm. Oh, she's right. all fussing cuz Bullet Bullet just does not Bullet has a weird fascination with these pullets since we brought him in the house.
1: Yeah, he uh he goes up to the the crate where they're in and he just kind of stares and he barks. And, and he kind of pushes up against the crate. Uh, and, and like he, I don't know if he would attack the chickens. He does he does like to chase the chickens on occasion, and we do allow him to chase the chickens for a few seconds at a time as training for what to do if a coyote comes into the yard. Right. So we, we do want them to run away from big furry critters. Yeah,
2: our, our chickens are pretty stupid. They sort of just I don't think there. our
1: chickens are any more stupid than other chickens. I think chickens well, are not particularly bright.
2: Well, don't say that because you will set up a whole cluster. I think chickens
1: people. are not that bright.
2: I second your.
1: It doesn't mean that I'm not fascinated by chickens. It doesn't mean that I, I don't really enjoy watching chickens. No. In, in fact, I, 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 you know, now this I probably shouldn't say, being that I have a show on Sportsman Channel, but. I think that chickens are more interesting than probably 90% of what is on television. I just, I, I do, I can watch, chickens are like a soap opera. They are. I oh mean, it's it's crazy just to sit there and watch chickens, especially if you have a bunch of them and they're free ranging and they're all running around and there's there's always drama. There's so much drama in a chicken's life. They're like, they don't need Twitter. No. Because they have enough drama in their own chicken lives that they yeah. don't need social media.
2: There is one of our original Buff Orpington hens. So she's she was two at the beginning of February. Mm-hmm. And apparently she does not like the new black Australorp hens that we have introduced to the flock. Oh, really? And so every time Chip gets busy one of, with one of the Australorps that hen comes right up behind and just like smacks her
1: now chip by the way is our rooster, rooster. Our, and, our, our alpha rooster and
2: get busy as a youth. Euph- well i by, believe honestly. i don't think we have to <laughs> i don't think
1: we have to provide i'm i'm fairly certain so, the audience yes, is aware chip of is that so chip
2: is our alpha rooster and and he get does his thing and he does his thing with all our ladies but there is one older buff orpington female who when mr when chip is finished with one of the younger hens she runs over it and gives them a smackdown.
1: After she goes after the hen.
2: Yeah, after the hen. It's really funny. So there is drama <laughs> in the chicken yard. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, yeah. Bullet's really close. Yeah, she's, bullets, bullets. She's getting you can... a little chirpy. <laughs> it's okay, baby.
1: All right, Bullet, go to your house. <laughs> uh boy this is distracting i thought it would be a, a fun segment but you add chicken you add dog all of a sudden it's uh, it's 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 crazy kind of chaotic kind of like this week was uh, i wasn't actually home for a lot of the week i was up in dc at the conservative political action conference which was uh, a, a great deal of fun it was uh, very very popular uh, far from the farms Although i did meet a couple of uh, individuals who who also have uh, uh, farms of their own, including, uh, for the first time, I got to meet in person Martha Benita from Liberty Farm uh, here in Virginia, who has a crazy story. The Daily Signal has covered it, uh, but in essence, when she bought her farm a few years ago, uh, she bought it from a, a group, a, a nonprofit profit group called the Piedmont Environmental Council. Uh, right before she bought it, they put an easement on the property, a conservation easement on the property. So there, were, all of a sudden there were all these restrictions. Uh, in addition, the county itself kind of went after Martha Benita. They tried to charge her a special use permit for having a, a a birthday party for a kid, a friend's kid on the farm, just all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, you think about it, you you move out to the country so that you can have a space of your own. And Martha actually had people coming and inspecting uh, her property uh, writing her up for uh, for for having a, a garden hose uh, out in the yard. I mean, just crazy stuff like that. So it was it was it was great to actually meet her. And I got to tell you, uh, honey, she's raising bees, which I know is on your to do list as well. So Martha says that she wants us to come up to her farm, and I invited her down here as well because uh, she's a, a great lady and really doing a lot for. Uh, for for food freedom and for you know property rights as a matter of fact two years in a row now uh, last year and this year the general assembly in virginia has passed what's called a bonita bill or the bonita bill uh governor mcauliffe is expected to sign this year's version last year's was signed uh by uh, governor uh, governor mcdonnell at the time and it's basically uh, legislation that just makes it easier for you to a- appeal if you have a conservation easement uh, on your property. There's 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 mechanisms for you to get beyond that uh, the the holder of that that conservancy uh, because it can be uh, apparently it can just be a real nightmare. We looked at one of these properties with a, a conservation easement, and it was a great property, but as i said i think we talked about this a little bit before the the woman uh, the wife who was part of the couple who owned the house she was a master gardener and the garden was just beautiful
2: it was it was absolutely it was the it was the chef's delight right around the house it was every yeah. herb you could ever use and it was and it was beautifully set amongst stepping stones right outside the kitchen but when you looked at the 93 page document that described the easement you were not allowed to put any buildings that extended outside the existing footprint of the buildings that were on the property if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. okay Um, yeah
1: so it was it was i think a three-bedroom House.
2: The house the, the house was a ranch style house and it actually was a nice size and had a good water system and it had a whole house generator. Right. It had a good But we I remember thinking like
1: we could use another bedroom. Right. We
2: needed a little bit more bedroom space and we would were thinking we wanted to build some more outbuildings, but we couldn't couldn't do
1: anything with that and other
2: than the existing footprint of the things that were there and the the things that were there that were torn down were like a very small tobacco barn and an equally small smokehouse
1: right and in addition to that the uh so not only could we not build any new uh, buildings or change the footprint but even in terms of the land itself there had been some land that had been set aside for quail habitat And you couldn't farm that anymore. You were not allowed to plant any crops on that.
2: I think the entire thing was like 110 acres.
1: 147.
2: And about 140 was that (laughs) quail reserve. The seven acres was right around the house.
1: Yeah. So, you know, thankfully we became aware of this. Uh, we were told, but all they said was, "Well, there's a conservation easement on the property." What that meant, we had to start looking up, and, and quickly we figured out, oh, "Okay, this is not."
2: I'm so glad I worked for a law firm at one point <laughs> in my life that I could look up the documentation and read that thing because it was it was it was tricky, diggy language in places.
1: Yeah, definitely. So you know, among the uh, thankfully, this wasn't a a painful lesson for us to learn. Mm-hmm. But you know, as you as you start looking uh, for that, that, that place of yours, definitely keep that in mind. If you hear that there's a, uh, an easement on the property, a conservation easement on the property, you want to look at the conservation easement. You want to look at the terms, uh, as Martha Benita said, you know, not everybody is, is awful to work with. It, and, and it's not that the conservation easements themselves are necessarily bad things, but, there are limitations to what you can do on your property. And so if if you have very specific ideas or if you are open-ended and you're not sure what you want to be able to do on your property, I, I, would, I would recommend not looking at a place that has a, a conservation easement just because you're going to be a little bit more tied down to what you can and can't do.
2: The additional downside or plus side for us that we didn't end up going through with this property purchase was that, the easement acreage was surrounded by a military.
1: Yeah, it was down near uh, Blackstone, Virginia, uh, near a place called Fort Pickett, which is a pretty small base, but it's getting bigger. In the last round of of BRAC, uh, there were all kinds of additions. And so, uh, yeah, it would have been maybe not itself built up, but there certainly would have been more traffic and... You know, and then listen, I love the sound of artillery in the morning. It just wakes you up and gets you going. But uh, I, can, I can understand. You're kind of shaking your head.
2: Well, I just, I think... I'm, I'm The sound
1: of shotguns is one thing.
2: The sound of shotguns, <laughs> the sound of practice and practice and practice and practice all day long, every day. It's kind of hard to take because it's stressful on your animals. It's not good for the mama goats and, it you know...
1: And it also, you know, worked out because I like the place that we found... All right, we're going to take a a quick timeout. Probably going to put the the little pullet back in her crate so she can go to bed for the night and Bullet can stop freaking out. Stick around, though, because we do have much more 40 Acres and a Fool coming up right after this quick timeout.
0: 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Welcome back. It's 40 Acres and a Fool. Cam Edwards with you. The email address is 40 Acre Fool at gmail.com. That's 40 acrefool. We'll uh, get to some of your emails coming up a little bit later in the program. I apologize for the scatterbrained nature of the uh, this week's episode. We're recording this. Uh, it's nighttime. The kids are in bed, the chickens are now asleep, bullets in his crate. Uh, this is the time of day where, you know, things start to wind down and it's where you actually have the time to sit down at the kitchen table for an hour or so. But it's also the time of day, if your brain is anything like mine, where it starts to turn to mush. You get put in brain this time of day. Um, so, again, a little, little scatterbrain, but, uh, but whatever. I'm glad that you're with us. Uh, last week we were talking about I think I mentioned Ron Bellin from Reaper Outdoors, came down to Farmville, hung out with us uh, in studio for an afternoon. Ron's a great guy, uh, has some incredible stories of growing up, uh, not necessarily on a farm, but growing up in the country with a, a, a dad who taught him how to hunt and trap. Ron was a Navy SEAL for 25 years. And when I was at CPAC, actually, this past week, Ron... Was down in North Carolina with a, a special operations wounded warriors hunt. They were hog hunting with knives, not with not with rifles, not from helicopters, with knives. Uh, and Kyle, who's our technical director down in Farmville, Virginia, since uh, since we were going to CPAC, Kyle, I said, "Go, go to North Carolina, go on the hunt." And uh, and so he got a chance to go, had a great time. Apparently, this is this is like one step above hunting with a sharp stick while wearing a loincloth i mean it is that primitive it is that wild and woolly uh and i i'm i got to say i think i probably need some prep time before i'm ready for that uh but ron before he uh, left gave us some venison and some bear meat uh we haven't tried the bear meat yet in fact uh, missy just read a story about the amount of Bear meat that has trichinosis in it, and you're not really sure you want to try the bear meat.
2: No, I have to look up on
1: how best to cook it, I think. You just got to cook it really, really, you know, all the way through.
2: And it's a really not... It's a very lean meat, so you have to also cook it with a lot of liquid. So I was thinking chili.
1: Bear chili? Yes. Okay.
2: Because it's ground. They okay. didn't give us cubes. It was all ground. So I will ground.
1: I will talk to uh, Steve Ranella, the meat eater from Sportsman Channel, because... He and his crew just uh, got trichinosis while eating bear, so I'll ask him if he has any tips on how to avoid that before we cook the uh, other bear. Uh, But the venison, the venison that we got from Ron, (laughs) the venison that we got from Ron is fine. In fact, uh, it's amazing. Uh, We made venison and goat cheese ravioli for dinner the other night, and I thought since Missy's here and all, maybe we could. Talk about the recipe. Now you found the original recipe uh, via Facebook, right? But you modified it a little bit.
2: Yes. Um, after going through it, I have just I've I made a couple of tweaks. the The original recipe had called for cubed venison, and what we got was ground. Right. So which worked really well. It worked fantastic because you had to grind it anyway. But the the recipe called for grinding it with spices. But the problem is, is that the 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 ingredient list wasn't very quantitative. Like uh the leaves from one large sprig of rosemary and the leaves from one large sprig of sage. Mm. People don't have this in their house. Right. So I used a teaspoon each. Okay. Um
1: so okay, well we don't have to talk about what the recipe isn't. Let's no. talk about what the recipe is. It if was you want awesome. it to be good, it was yummy. How do we cook it?
2: Um So, the first thing you want to do is find a good pasta dough. Um, The recipe that I followed, it was very heavy. Mm -hmm. I would recommend something with semolina flour. But look for something for a ravioli. Something light. You want to roll it down to a one if you have a pasta machine. And so, but after that, the filling... What if you don't
1: have a pasta machine? What if you just have a roller?
2: If you just have a roller, you want to roll it... Down to a millimeter. I mean, you want it really, really thin. You want it thin. Because it's only
1: going to be in the water for a couple of minutes, right? Yes.
2: The filling is already pre-cooked. And so all you're doing once you've assembled the ravioli is to cook the pasta. And once it's thin, then it takes but three minutes to cook. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a lighter flavor. It's... Heavy pasta is not a good thing because especially since this goes from being ravioli to sort of being tossed in the mushroom, shallot, butter, white wine sauce at the final.
1: Okay. All right. So so start with your ravioli so dough. Start with
2: your good ravioli dough. M- make it into your whatever size. Mm-hmm. So this is the part that's flexible. The filling ingredients are uh a half a pound of venison and i used ground and so from here i had to kind of switch things around
1: okay and by the way if you don't have venison you could use ground beef you could use whatever but yeah
2: any ground meat would do so but you could use but it's you want to do a more red meat because of the spices this the the rosemary the sage the finish wouldn't work with chicken it would die. Okay. Kinda in the in the in the presentation. So you're gonna take your half a pound of ground venison, you're gonna mix it up with five minced garlic cloves one teaspoon each of rosemary and a nice sage. I used a a Dalmatian sage for whatever's, but there's different types. I like
1: Chihuahua sage. That's, that's, that's my favorite, <laughs> Sharpay and, sage, but it's just so wrinkly.
2: So you mix the meat up with the spices, and you're gonna you're gonna brown that ahead of time. So you're gonna pre cook the meat before it ends up as the filling.
1: Okay, so cook it, set it aside. Cook
2: it, set it aside, let it chill. Then you're going to take, once you've gotten your pasta set out, you're going to put a, about a teaspoon of the meat mixture and a just, couple just of crumbles some, of goat cheese.
1: Yeah, now here's the one thing, though, that, that we weren't really sure about because it didn't, What when we, when we did it separately, we put the ground venison down and then we sprinkled some blue cheese on top. When we cooked it, it didn't really bind together all that well. So no, it was
2: a crumbly filling when it came apart. and that's my my next fix on this is like, I think the next time I make this, I'm going to take the warm, the still warm cooked ground venison mixture and put the goat cheese in it and mix it. so it becomes sort of this like more. Creamy, Melty, moldy, creamy yeah. package that is a better inside to these ravioli.
1: Yeah, I think that would work. I think it just it would, it would, the cheese would serve as a better binding agent itself. Exactly, so.
2: and maybe an egg yolk. Mm. Again, like again, it's it's just a matter of like that. that experiment. That blue. Make In this experiment, your own, right? so we're making it our own. So so we made the ravioli. Uh, we cut it into pieces. We sort of set it aside, and then I took about half a stick of butter and one shallot and I got the butter melted and I t- cut the shallot into thin little slices and rings and got that sort of translucent, added in six thinly sliced button mushrooms and another tablespoon of butter and got the but- the button mushrooms nicely browned and then I deglazed the pan with about a half a cup, a cup of white wine we did Riesling. I wouldn't do Riesling again. I got a recommendation for a Vanier. I think that would be a much mm-hmm. better choice, or a, Is a uh, Pinot was it Grigio. A Vince was that
1: the... <laughs> No, Sorry.
2: you want a drier white. I, the the reasoning was a little He's too... a pretty dry white guy. I he's mean,
1: a very you know, dry white guy. He's got a dry... W- sense into humor. I
2: swear if he ever came up with a Vince vonier wine, I would totally buy it.
1: If he's listening, you know, maybe he will now.
2: Well, now he knows. Um, so uh, the butter, the shallots are going. We've thrown in the mushrooms, a little bit more butter, the wine. And now at the very finish, you're going to throw in... And this is... This is Per taste, because the recipe said a handful, and I have really big hands that I was making a lot for people, and I wanted it to count as a vegetable, but it's a, it's a handful of, of baby spinach with the stems removed, and so that all goes spinning around in the sauce, and then the four minutes to cook in the boiling hot water is how, f- for, the ravioli. how for the ravioli, you take the ravioli out of the boiling water, you put it into the finished sauce, uh Stir spin, serve with a big chunk of bread to sop up that sauce
1: yeah it was fantastic
2: that sauce was awesome
1: it really was it was a really good uh you know i'm I'm used to honestly i mean i'm I'm used to really heavy tomato sauces with uh, with a ravioli That's and so dishes. this was yeah. yeah this was almost. Like, it was it was it was interesting because it was almost a sauce that could go with with a chicken dish even could, though this is a red meat ravioli it
2: could but it, it would, worked it could be with um a thinly sliced pounded breaded veal cutlet or a thinly sliced chicken cutlet mm-hmm. but it was just the. The the melting of the butter, the sauté of the shallots, throw in the mushrooms, deglaze with the wine, and add a little bit more butter. I added more butter at the finish, and it made it this succulent sauce. Everything goes better with butter. Oh, yeah, butter, uh, butter, butter.
1: But no, it was. It was was really, really, uh, really well done. The sauce uh, was very well done. And, you know, again, it it was light, so it allowed the flavors... Uh, of the the venison, and you got that nice tang of the goat cheese to come through. So yeah, it and, worked. It worked really well,
2: and it was fun to cook with you. I was so impressed with you making ravioli after I just showed you how to do it the one time. You just took over, and you were awesome.
1: Well, you know, I uh, my my uh, my my go to recipe when we first met was uh, <laughs> seafood fettuccine alfredo. So I, I am I, I know my way around a pasta dish.
2: Well. This was Uh-oh. homemade, fresh pasta, but...
1: Uh, as opposed to noodles and canned Alfredo sauce. Canned
2: and and jarred and blah, blah, blah. It's okay. You still impressed me because you made me dinner.
1: <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't have to do that all that often. No, I like to cook, actually. I do. It's just, it's hard because you are so so good at it, and I enjoy eating as much as I enjoy cooking, that uh, I often just step back and say, here, it's... Take it away, maestro.
2: No, but it was fun last night to cook with you.
1: It was. It was. All right, listen, we're going to take another time out. Missy's probably going to uh, wander off to bed. I know you got to get up early, and uh, I do too. But we've got a couple more segments here. In fact, when we come back, I want to uh, get to a letter, an email. Not not an actual honest-to-goodness letter, but an email that I received uh, from a, a new listener. Stick around. We've got more 40 Acres in a Fool
0: coming up right after this. This is 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks again for tuning in to 40 Acres and a Fool. Uh, I got an email here from Don
1: out in California. And he said, uh, this is a great program. I was born and raised in the inner city of San Diego and it was the sleepy little Navy town. Even the city at that time, there were still dairies and horses in the city. San Diego is now the sixth largest city in America. Don says, I moved to the, quote, country when I was 16 years old, a small foothill town called Alpine. At the time, the population of Alpine and the surrounding area was 1,200 people. Now, Don says, it's 25,000. Uh, Don says he has a quote-unquote California ranch, two acres, two horses, and four dogs in an orchard. I am a true California redneck, says Don. I grew up with firearms uh, through the Cub and Boy Scout, still use the range I first shot at when I was eight years old. My parents were both depression kids, both raised on farms, one in New York, one in North Carolina. They were both in the military during World War II, met in San Diego after the war, We grew up with the concept of 40 acres and a mule, and as I was the youngest when I entered the Air Force in the early 1970s, they sold out in California and went back to North Carolina for their 40 acres and a mule. Anyway, Don says, it is still my desire to retire in a situation similar to what you and your wife are endeavoring to. Good luck and Godspeed with your endeavors, says Don, NRA Life member and a, quote, bald redhead. Well, Don, thank you, sir, for writing in, and uh, I wish you all the best uh, in your search for your 40 acres. Sounds like uh, you and I have some some similar stories uh although you are a, a little bit older than I am. I am I'm, I'm the youngest of 3 uh for my mom and dad, but if you uh, include my dad's first marriage I'm the youngest of 6. Uh and my parents uh, my mom was 40 when I was born, my dad was 48 when I was born. Uh, they are both depression kids as well. My dad was born in uh, the 1920s. My mom was born uh, in uh, 1934. And they didn't both grow up on farms. My dad grew up more in, I, I guess, a small town setting. But but even in the small town setting back then, you know, you had chickens. Uh, I think they had a cow. My mom grew up on a, uh, on a farm in Oklahoma during the Great Depression, and she had almost nothing. Uh, she was eighteen as a matter of fact before she lived in a house that had both running water uh, and electricity I'm sorry uh, that had a combination of three things running water, electricity and indoor plumbing. She had one or two of those, but it wasn't until she was an adult that she actually had all three of those uh things in the house and it's you know it's amazing uh, Don how far we have come now I mean even uh, this old house that we have built in the 1700s, we thankfully have electricity and running water most of the time, except when the pipes freeze, and in uh, indoor plumbing as well. Speaking of the uh, pipes freezing, by the way, I am pleased to report, I am very, very pleased to report that for the first time in three winters, we will not run out of propane. <laughs> we we, uh, we got down to, I'm not kidding, Probably three gallons of propane in our 500-gallon tank, uh, but we did get it refilled, and uh, no harm, no foul. the uh, The truck did get stuck in the snow, but it's okay. I felt kind of bad until I uh, learned that the propane company has their own tow truck. Because apparently, when you're delivering propane out to people in the country, your trucks get stuck on a fairly regular basis. So I didn't feel uh, didn't feel too bad about that. Uh, but Don, again, I I do wish you the uh, the very best. I know it's tough out there in California, but uh, we are thinking of you. We are, uh, you know, as far as the, uh, the 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 gun issues go, and even even more than the gun issues, uh, you are not alone, and you have not been left behind. You have not been forgotten. I promise you that there are uh, folks, uh, not just in California, but all around the country, who are uh, who are vested in what happens in your state, because California is one of those laboratories. You know they uh, they like to experiment with legislation there, and if they can pass it in California, then they export it out to the rest of the country. So we are uh, we're definitely pulling for you, and and hopefully uh, Don, you, you get your forty acres away from California uh, there in the future. Uh, this has uh, typically been the segment where I end up talking about the uh, the books that I've read over the past week, or the book a, a book that I've read over the past week, but. I'll be honest with you. I haven't had much of a chance to read. I mean, I was at CPAC, and I can't give you. So I can't give you all the details yet. Uh, but I can tell you that I'm actually working on a book right now. So my reading time has been dramatically curtailed uh, as I uh, spend more time writing a book. And I, I promise you, when I can reveal the details, uh, I, I, I will. I'm not I'm not trying to keep it a secret. We just haven't gotten to the point yet where we can really uh let loose with uh with all of the uh, ins and outs of what this book is going to be about. So, unfortunately, I don't really have any uh any any book reviews or uh uh details to give you. Uh next week, hopefully, I'll be able to give you a uh, another nugget or two of, of forgotten wisdom that we found in the uh in the old books uh what i have been perusing this week however is catalogs seed catalogs this is this is the great time of year for uh, for seed catalogs first of all you you've got to order everything that you need but you know when you are stuck in the uh, depths of winter uh, it's nice to actually be able to look at the seed catalog and think of the summer months ahead and all of the other great veggies so we have put together our list of tomatoes. Now, we, we save seeds, uh, and so we actually have 24, 24 different varieties of uh, of tomato seeds that we've saved from uh, last year. Some of them, uh, we're not really sure. We think they're hybrids, so we're not going to be able to, uh, to reuse them. Uh, but we have, these are the ones that we've saved from last year. We have the chocolate cherry, which is a small dark cherry tomato it's uh it's really really sweet it's very very good um it's it's got a very very thin skin so it doesn't transport well uh, you're not going to find it in farmers markets it bruises it, it cracks really easily so it's not uh, it's hard to keep it pretty but boy it tastes good the uh, hartman's yellow gooseberries this is a yellow tomato again it's a, a smaller tomato the 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 berry uh, should clue you in on that very very sweet uh, and, and just prolific, at least for us. We've had great success growing the Hartman's Yellow Gooseberries. Uh, the Vernissage, which are a little bit bigger, a little bit meatier, uh, great with salads. We've got the black Vernissage. We've got the uh, yellow Vernissage, pink Vernissage, green Vernissage. Uh, we also have green zebras and, I believe, uh, uh, yellow zebras. We have yellow pears which are a, a small bell-shaped or pear-shaped uh, tomato as well. San Marzano's, which are a great uh, uh, canning to or paste tomato. Uh, and those, again, very, very prolific. Uh, and we've used those for the last couple of years. Grappolis, which are a, another small grape tomato. We really like the, the grapes. Uh, pearly Pink, which uh, I think is a little bit bigger than a... It's a salad size, Missy e says. She just made a, a guest appearance here in this segment. Uh, purple pears, purple Russians. Uh, a peche, which is a uh, supposedly a fuzzy peach-looking tomato. I didn't see the resemblance, uh, and I didn't find it particularly fuzzy as well. Uh, the the Amish paste, which is another paste tomato. The uh, indigo apple, pink Berkeley tie-dye, which uh, we only had a couple of. The, the bigger tomatoes, honestly, it seems every time we grow them, they get to a certain point and they just get a bite or two taken out of them by rabbits or groundhogs or uh, or other little critters uh, and we have not had that same problem with the smaller tomatoes but the uh, the larger ones we've uh, we've not had a lot of success with so the plan this year is that we're actually going to grow some of the larger ones in uh, containers uh in the the front yard very close to the house with the hope and the idea that perhaps the uh Little woodland creatures will be less likely to eat them. We have the uh, the long keeper, which is a uh, it's a larger tomato, um, but it is also, as its name implies, it is a a storage tomato. So you want to grow that later in the season. Uh, it'll keep for several months, particularly when it gets uh, when it gets cooler. Cherokee Purple is another one that uh, it's a it's a larger tomato. What we what we got of the Cherokee Purples last year were really great. It's a nice heritage or a nice uh, heirloom tomato. Uh, really dark, really meaty. Again, it's great on uh, sandwiches. If you like tomato sandwiches, you know, just two pieces of white bread, little mayonnaise, put down the uh, tomato slices, thick-cut tomato slices, little salt and pepper on top. The uh, the Cherokee Purples are fantastic for that. But we are we are getting some new varieties of tomatoes this year as well. So uh, we have ordered the Powers Heirloom, which is uh, this is I'm, I'm quoting here from Totally Tomatoes, the Totally Tomatoes catalog. They have the Powers Heirloom. Uh, they uh, say it can be traced to seed that originated in Virginia over a century ago. And I do like those Virginia tomatoes. I like the tomatoes that are, are if not native uh, to where uh, you live, that the, the, they have, you know, a little bit of a history that can be traced back to where you live. Uh, heavy sets of pale yellow three to five ounce fruits are fragrant and juicy ...with meaty flesh and a sweet, mild flavor that draws raves from tomato connoisseurs. One of the very best varieties for canning and fresh eating. Uh, Fans of Amish paste tomatoes will recognize the same great qualities here. So we're getting some uh, Powers Heirloom. Also getting some Red Pear Tomatoes, which, again, that that pear shape, but it's not a yellow pear. it's It's a bright red. They say it's one of the rarest of the heirloom varieties Hardy uh, medium-sized plants yield plenty of small red pear-shaped fruits with very few seeds. the The, the pear tomatoes actually do have very few seeds. Uh, perfect, they say, for pickles. Uh, and you're gonna need, if you want a pickled tomato, you're gonna need a, a a thicker red skin. You're not gonna want to get a thin-skinned tomato. The the it just will not stand up to the uh, to the pickling. Uh, I mentioned the uh, the San Marzanos that we're getting. Uh, we're also getting uh, some uh they're called bumblebees they're they're new this year um uh, that in a lot of the SE calics, at least they're they're new for me uh, again a a smaller uh almost a, a grape sized tomato uh we are getting a variety of pink purple and uh, I think, yeah, uh, pink, purple, as well as uh, bumblebees. And then in the tiger tomatoes, which are also a, uh, a nice, small, uh, a sweet tomato, we are getting uh, green tigers, pink tigers, and blush tigers, which are a, a golden yellow with a, a pink blush. Um, the smaller tomatoes are not all going to be sweeter than the larger ones, but they do tend to pack a, a great deal of, uh, of sweetness, uh, particularly if you get like a sun gold or a sun sweet tomato, those are so sweet. It's almost like eating a fruit. I, I mean, I know tomato actually is a fruit, but uh, you know what I mean? It's like eating a, a berry. It's almost like eating a little orange. So there's a, you know, there's a huge variety of uh, tomatoes out there. I mean, literally hundreds of different varieties of tomatoes. Uh, I, I it's one of my favorite summer foods, and I love being able to go down to the garden and just pick a, a handful of tomatoes, wash them off from the hose, and just eat them right there. There's just oh, there's nothing better. So we have our uh, our full uh, lineup of uh, tomatoes, mostly indeterminate tomatoes, mostly the uh, the small cherries and and salad sized tomatoes. Uh, but we do still have the uh we have a couple of varieties of paste and like I said we're going to be going with a uh, couple of the larger varieties as well. We're we're growing more than just tomatoes uh by the way but we'll 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 talk about some of the other vegetables uh in a uh, later edition of 40 acres in a fool. Again, I'd love to know what you're growing, uh tomatoes or otherwise. You can send us an email 40 gmail.com. That's 40 Acrefool at gmail dot com. You can follow me on Twitter as well. It's at Cam Edwards. Photos from the farm on Instagram at Cam Edwards as well. On Facebook, it's Facebook.com slash Cam Edwards two A. The uh, number two A. All right, when we come back here on Forty Acres in a Fool, I want to talk about uh stories that uh a couple of stories actually that have not been getting the types of headlines that w- you might think they would. When farm income has dropped by uh, and is, is uh, estimated to drop by a third this year, you'd think that's going to be a pretty big story, right? Particularly when the president is talking about the recovering economy. Well, it's not all sectors of the economy that are doing better. But this is a story that has gone largely unnoticed. And it has real-world impacts for thousands of families all across the country so when we come back we'll talk a little bit more about what's happening uh, on farms around the country stick around there's more 40 acres and a fool coming up right after
0: this you're listening to 40 acres and a fool with cam edwards on the blaze radio network 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Plays Radio Network. Thanks so much for joining
1: us here on another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. Uh, you know, we were talking about tomatoes in the last segment. What we do, by the way, is we we start our tomatoes from seed. We start them uh, inside. Hopefully this year will be able to use the greenhouse, uh, as I think I mentioned, and not uh, every conceivable window in our home. But we uh, we've not yet had a chance to put the panels up in the greenhouse. That's our uh, project for this weekend when it's supposed to be sunny and in, in the fifties. So uh, knock on wood, we'll be able to uh, use our greenhouse for its intended purpose this spring. But but last year, as I said, we simply started our uh, tomatoes from seed. We uh, we we had them in, in uh, you know little seed pots in the house. Put them up against the windows. We had uh, some shelving units that we put up against the windows. so We could put more of the uh, seedlings up there. Uh, we, uh, we, we had, in essence, I, I guess, cloches uh, for, the, uh, for the tomato seeds as well. We took gallon milk jugs and cut the, uh, the jugs in two different pieces. Uh, you want to cut towards the bottom so that you can use the bottom of the, uh, the gallon milk jug as a base. And you can actually put your seed pots, you can probably fit four to five of them there in the base of that. Gallon milk jug, and then you just put the top again. Make sure you've washed the milk jugs; you've gotten all of the milk out of there. Uh, but you can take the the top part, and you can just place it on top, and that'll provide almost a little greenhouse uh, of its own. It'll it'll allows the the light to get in. You can get a little bit of fresh air, but it'll also keep some heat uh, trapped in there. And it, it it really works well. I was I was kind of shocked at how well uh, that little that little tip worked. So if you uh, if you don't have a greenhouse, you're getting ready to uh, to start your plants. You want to grow some plants. You don't want to wait until uh, August or September to start getting tomatoes. You want to start as early as you can. Drink your milk and save the uh, save the gallon jugs. All right, I mentioned in the uh, last segment that there is uh, some some headlines out there that I, I don't think they're getting nearly the attention that uh, that they should. Uh, First off, a a story from AgriPulse.com. Farm income projected to plunge 32% this year. 32%, down by a third. The uh, USDA's Economic Research Services estimated a couple weeks ago that net farm income will drop from $108 billion in 2014 down to 736 billion billion dollars in 2015. And that's down from a uh, record high of $129 billion just two years ago in 2013. Uh, AgriPol says, because of the decline in market prices, government payments to farmers are projected to rise 15% this year to $12.4 billion. That would be the largest amount of farm subsidies since 2000. And ten. Now, there are some areas of agriculture that uh, are expected to see some growth. Uh, AgriPol says cattle producers are expected to see an increase in income this year. Receipts for broiler chickens, they say, could be up slightly. They say most other commodities, on the other hand, are expected to see declines. And with the decline in farm income, uh, I think we will continue to see, unfortunately, a decline in the number of farms. Story out of Chippewa, Wisconsin. Number of small farms in Wisconsin continues to drop. It was the uh, Chippewa Herald, and they say that uh, 800 farms disappeared in the state of Wisconsin in 2014, and small farms uh, made up a majority of those losses. Now they the uh, the Chippewa Herald says that small farms still comprise about 44 percent of these state's farms, but that's down from 48% five years ago. When I say small farm, average size here is 66 acres. So that is a small, uh, generally speaking, independent a uh, uh, type of farm operation, not making a lot of money, uh, lower overhead than uh, some of the big operations. But uh, these are the farms that are uh, increasingly, uh, I don't want to say increasingly, but but, but are, are generally most at risk. Now, the Chippewa Herald says nationally the number of farms, down 18,000 to a little more than 2 million. Total land and farms decreased by a million acres from 2013. Now, we still have 913 million acres of farmland, so a, a loss of a million acres, while it sounds staggeringly large, uh, all things considered, is not. But it's it's uh, and we can do more with less land. We 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 can, and that's uh, that that has to be appreciated. However, this also means again fewer folks uh, who are farming and who are able to farm, and yet the uh, the dream still remains for thousands. Tens of thousands of us around the country. The uh, Capitol Press in Oregon had a story out of uh, Corvallis uh, not long ago. More than 900 farmers, Denise Rutten writes, flocked to the Small Farms Conference at Oregon State University on uh, the uh, last weekend of February, coming from all over the Pacific Northwest to learn from each other and to network before the busy growing season begins. Most, she writes, were intensely focused on one mission, sharing their passion for farming, and they came with as many different business models as they did backgrounds. Lori Conway of Conway Family Farms in Fern Prairie, Washington, follows the Joel Salatin model of animal agriculture. Uh, Conway discussed the challenges she faced while farming on small acreage, She says, like most of small farms, most owners of small farms, meat is only one of many revenue streams. Conway makes most of her money from her her goat dairy. Uh, She also raises sheep for fiber. She said, when you raise animals, you either end up with meat at some point or you end up with geriatric animals that take a lot of care. I'm not a vegetarian, but it's the part I like the least, she said. But it is a natural byproduct of having livestock. I think, by the way, that's a, a relatively common attitude. Um, you know, butchering your own animals that you've raised is not easy it's not fun but it is a job and I suppose that there are farmers out there who, who have become vegetarians after uh, having to do that I have not but uh, I gotta say I'm, I'm with Lori it's not one of my favorite things to do uh, on the farm whether it's butchering chickens or having to put down uh, a, a sick animal but I, I I I do enjoy a a good chicken dinner. I do enjoy my chicken noodle soup. And uh, yeah, I love my bacon. Uh, One of the other uh, uh, individuals uh, quoted the story in uh, Oregon. A uh, bigger family farm, 320 acres. It's called the Deck Family Farm. Uh, Home to pasture-raised, organic cattle, sheep, hogs, and chickens. Even with the bigger farm, uh, Christine Deck, one of the uh, co-owners, says the farm relies on many revenue streams, including a raw milk cooperative. But the Capitol Press says a bigger hurdle for the farm lies in its ability to expand. The farm leases an additional 200 acres for cattle, but land is expensive and competitive to acquire. Uh, Market share is also an issue, with uh, so many small farms competing for the same customers, so... Uh, Christine Deck's solution, she said, is an ambitious one. She said, I would like to build a cooperative group of like-minded livestock producers in the Willamette Valley so that we can all market under one name. That way we can maintain these values that we hold as very important. We're actually seeing more of this, uh, by the way, among small farmers, and I, I think it's a great idea in theory. Now, I, I, again, I'm not certainly not the expert here, but it it makes sense to me. You know, actually, in Oregon, uh, you have the what is it the, uh, the, the Tillamook uh, cheese, right? The, the, the Tillamook uh, County Creamery Association, which is a co-op of about 100 or so uh, dairies there in Oregon. and it's been around for a while now. I mean the, ideas, uh, the, the idea of a co-op itself is nothing new. Uh, and no, I, I don't think it has to be uh, particularly socialistic either. It it's still, it, you know, in essence, I think the the, the biggest advantage of a 21st century co op uh, is exactly what the uh, the the independent dairy farmers who established the uh, the Tillamook uh, Creamery Association realized. It is the power. Of the brand, and so if you are in uh, you know one county in Oregon, or if you are in a uh, a five county area in southern Virginia, uh, and you're trying to do this all by your lonesome on your sixty uh, something acres, life's gonna be pretty tough uh, because in addition to growing your food, you also have to try to establish your brand as a farm, right? And that that takes time and that takes effort. It's gonna be uh, that 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 can be a full time job in and of itself. Uh, if, on the other hand, you are able to uh, uh, band together with other like-minded farmers in your area, then you can share those marketing costs. You can share the uh, the costs of uh, the, the entrance fees to get into farmers' markets. You obviously uh, have many more, uh, many many more opportunities to uh, to sell your product. You also have an opportunity to diversify your product if you are looking at a uh, bunch of different farmers who are growing different types of vegetables you do have that 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 ability to diversify uh in a way that would be very difficult for you as a, a single farmer to do so i think that there there are a lot of advantages to this the the downside of course is that you know a lot of people who are small farmers are are pretty independent uh they didn't they didn't do this they didn't make all of these sacrifices they didn't uh uh, uh become the, the the new pioneers of the near frontier just so that they could uh, be a, a a part of a collective. It is uh, in some sense, uh, I think innately unappealing to a, a a pretty large percentage of those who who have that dream of being a small farmer. I think the key then is to to maintain your independence. And even to keep your own identity uh, as a farm and to keep your farm's identity while being a part of uh, something that is a, uh, a, a a bigger brand than just your own farm and I think it helps if it is an organically um, and I don't I don't mean this in terms of you know we don't use pesticides organic but but if it's an organic uh institution. If it is, you know, the 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 farmers in one county or one region, uh, something that I think is, you know, something that has natural boundaries, something that makes sense uh, to be together. If it was, uh, you know, we're going to get folks from northern Alabama and southern New Hampshire and we're going to get a we're going to get a co-op together between these two groups. That, to me, would be a little odd, a little unusual, and probably wouldn't work. But if you can find like-minded neighbors, friends, people, again, in your community, uh, I, I think that there is a, a, a great deal of value in being able to establish uh, some sort of shared identity while maintaining, again, it's very important, while maintaining your own uh, sense of independence. So uh, no matter if you're uh, going off on your own, if you're a part of a a farmer's collective, I wish you all of the best this growing season. Uh, We will be back with another episode of 40 Acres and a Fool in about a week or so. Uh, In the meantime, please, love to hear from you. The email address one more time is 40acrefool, that's 40acrefool at gmail.com. Tell us what you're growing, tell us what you're uh, learning Tell us about uh, your experiences on the farm or your hopes and dreams for your own 40 Acres one day. Until we meet again, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot. And we'll talk to you soon right here on another episode of 40 Acres and a Fool.
0: 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.